to our very first Final Girls mini podcast and the very first episode of this mini podcast that I am calling in a very in a very original turn of events Promising Young Podcast because on this four episode show we are only going to be talking about one movie Promising Young Woman. My name is Anna Bogutskaya. I'm a writer and co-founder of the Final Girls Collective. And joining me for this very first episode are two of my very favorite people to record anything with, podcast forum or otherwise. So Jordan Cruciola, Clarice Lockery, I know you very well, but can you please introduce yourselves? Tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do. Clarice, do you want to go first? Uh, I am, well, I have the very fancy title of the chief film critic of The Independent. So I just, I just review hey, movies. Hey. That's the real job. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I appear on a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of, po- I've counted how many podcasts I'm doing at the moment and I got scared by the number. So How many is it? <laughs> well, I have four at the moment that are mm. weekly, or not weekly, or regular podcasts which probably to you is 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 nothing but i am a baby podcaster so <laughs> already built your podcasting empire yeah yeah <laughs> growing and growing and what about you jordan hi yes i am jordan cruciola of uh i'm going to say uh screaming about the gayness of blade trinity on anna's final girls podcast fame and <laughs> one of my greatest points, one of the greatest points uh, anybody could make about the Blade franchise. Um, but yes, and and also screaming about Jennifer's body and all cheerleaders die with with Anna on her her channels as well. I I write about movies. I'm working on making movies. Um, and I I also have multiple podcasts about movies. There's the Ots Tyrion podcast about. Uh, the intersection of uh, pop culture and horror cinema I- around the the 2000s era. And then there's, of course, Disaster Girls, where we just talk about Disaster Girls for a very long time. And I'm working on one right now, another mini pod, uh, to follow a simple favor podcast, uh, all about an- the neon demon with uh, the the wonderful uh, film critics and writers and, and commenters, William O. Tyler and Roxana Haddadi. And we are all collectively obsessed with that. And uh, it's really giving me a great format to get hyped ev- like on an hourly basis by uh, Elle Fanning and Abby Lee, which I just do recreationally. So I might as well channel that into a product of some kind. <laughs> that is exactly the energy that goes into the making of Promising a Podcast as well. I l- need to give credit where credit's due because Jordan, a simple favor, you are a simple favor podcast called a simple podcast yes. has been 100% the inspiration behind putting this project together because I could not stop thinking and talking and yelling about promising young woman so I had to create a mini pod it's the best thing I I I I was I was a journalist for like 15 years I'm a really good writer I'm a way better talker even than that and I just it's it's the most fun way to me to like I love the teasing out in process with people in conversation of talking about a movie it just you get it's just the writing is not a lesser form of critique obviously but it's just such a nice supplemental thing and to be able to hear people relating in the conversation around it doing that podcast with Christina and Alana was one of my favorite things I have ever done so I'm really glad that you are taking up the torch for this one and being like no I just simply cannot be contained in regards to this film so I must start my own conversation conversation forum i love that 
100%. So to give a little outline of what we're going to do in this very first episode, because this film is coming out today in the UK, finally... So people are finally going to be able to see it widely. And it's it's been talked about for what feels like a year now. Literally, it's been like a year and three months because it premiered at Sundance in 2020. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yay, UK. <laughs> we get everything late. <laughs> I mean. I mean. Congratulations on those BAFTAs to Lucky Chap and Team Promising Young Woman. Your movie is almost out. In the country of origin of the BAFTA. <laughs> but for this very first episode, and to celebrate, the re- finally celebrate the release of Promising Young Women in the UK, what we're going to do is talk about the film generally for the first part. And don't worry for anyone who has not had the chance to see it yet, I will make a very, very clear spoiler warning. So if you listen to this if you need some convincing to go see Promising Young Woman, if you need some convincing to seek out Promising Young Woman and watch it, this first part of the episode is the one for you. And then if you are spoiler reverse, don't listen to the final part. If you don't really mind, continue. But there will be a very, very clear warning. So, And if you think you don't mind, I would counsel you to mind in the case of this film. If you're like, no, 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 I love spoilers. Like, there are certain people, I had a couple people text me um, I saw it at a press screening in February of last year. Mm-hmm. Lost my mind. And um, I had a couple of you like, no, tell me. Like, I've heard that there's like this thing that happens. Like, what happens? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. And they're like, no, no, no. I don't care about spoilers. I don't care. I'm like, N- I mean, I I'm, I normally wouldn't make this choice for you, but I'm actually not going to be the one to spoil this <laughs> because I, mm. I think you will regret it if I tell you, actually. That's noble. I never do that. <laughs> I see, you know, when I see the Marvel movies early, I'm just texting everybody and be like, I'm a dice. <laughs> oh my god, I did not know you were a little spoiler troll, Clarice. Spoiler troll. <laughs> only if people ask for it. But if people You're ask like, oh, I can't it, wait I, to tell you all this stuff. I fully unload. No hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> so to dig straight into it and we've kind of hinted at it a little bit mm-hmm. but can i ask you guys what were your expectations of the films before it became the the snowball of discourse and conversation that it has become at this point when it was just but when it was premiering at sundance 2020 mm-hmm. what were your expectations of promising young women that i i think that is that is a particularly interesting question in regards to this film specifically because you what is presented in the marketing materials certainly adheres more to what we would consider like a a historically more conventional you know femme revenge thriller and i think there are instances where most instances that kind of thing is false advertising um where it's trying to like hook you with a thing that the movie does for 30 seconds because it's the most interesting part but then it doesn't it like totally you know falls flat of that or it's a different tone entirely I think considering the nature of the roller coaster of this movie, the slight of hand uh, that is present in the market materials, I consider actually part of the narrative experience. So I was going in because I, I love revenge films. I I enjoy um very intense rape revenge films. I don't necessarily know if I'll save the version of revenge film that this is because maybe that does feel a little spoilery for now. Um, but I was ready for like, we're going to fuck men are going to die. This is going to be so fun. And it's going to be Carrie Mulligan. And she's going to, when she does her, when she does her American accent, which is a 
really good American accent. When she does her American accent, her voice like drops a little lower too. So it's going to be like husky voice, Carrie Mulligan. And obviously like you were always already getting a sense of the needle drops and the colors and the like the millennial pink and that kind of stuff. I was hyped for like her to fucking kill some people. And then the way this plays out, it's immediately surprising in that way. You kind of start with the fact of your expectations being subvertive. And I really like that sort of from go, from the title card and her eating like that, what is it, like a jelly donut as she walks down the street. From that minute, you should be aware, oh, I approached this with a certain mentality and I need to be right now doing work to divest myself from what I thought because I think this movie is going to take me on a different kind of trip. And so, and I was very grateful to have seen it in February when it had only been out for a couple weeks, I was losing my fucking mind. I remember when the trailer came out and posted it on Twitter and people being like, ah, I promise I gotta go in. Like, I just remember the <laughs> panic around it. And like that initial poster with like her on the, you know, the, the banquette, but it's lips and it's the dripping text. Oh my God, everything. And so my anticipation was high, but I had a blessedly short gap between the time when it came out and people were starting to react to it and when I actually got to see it. And I cannot, the huge props to this movie for sustaining a wave of buzz for more than a year in what has to be, I think, just given by nature of the pandemic and the way the show was moved into later April, from end of January last year to the end of this month when the Oscars happen, Promising Young Women will have been sustaining a wave of buzz and conversation for almost a year and a half. And that mm -hmm. is, I mean, the fact that Get Out made its awards push the way that it did coming out at Sundance and then making its way to the Oscar stage. But it even had a shorter duration to campaign and it was a heroic effort. Like it was it was a theme of that Oscar campaign that, my God, they've even drugged this through an entire year of people paying attention to it. You've really got the juice when you can do that. That's my long answer. And it's it's been like sustained as well. Because Judas and the Black Messiah was Sundance as well, but they sort of dropped it away <laughs> he tried to make yeah. everyone forget about it and then relaunched at the beginning of this year be like pretend this is new <laughs> yeah just pretend this is a new movie and you didn't see it before so i i mean it's been interesting for me because i yeah i had to wait the year until seeing it completely and i've honestly started doing this thing of just just trying to avoid trailers and posters and hype because mm -hmm. this there is this repeating pattern of 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 people going in with very strict expectations of what something should be and mm -hmm. when it doesn't turn out that way that that becoming disappointment as opposed mm -hmm. to surprise and so i've been trying to combat that in myself by just fully not engaging with anything until i i mm -hmm. actually watch the film so i yeah i went in fairly fresh i <laughs> i think i'd seen the poster i i i knew that bo burden was in it and <laughs> that was pretty you're like locked it. locked in for me <laughs> yeah i mean the second i saw the headline bo burden cares the promising young woman i was like i'll see that movie i don't know what it's about but <laughs> you've got my ticket i'm i'm in the cinema i'm watching it <laughs> Let's let's talk about the film itself. I think this is a roundabout question that encompasses both the film and the performances. And Jordan, you mentioned Carrie Mulligan mm. in uh, when we were talking about expectations. So let's talk a little bit about Carrie Mulligan, both her performance and her star persona as well in relation to the expectations of Promising Young Woman, but also kind of then 
let's talk as well about Cassie Cassandra, who's the who's the lead. Mm-hmm. I I'm very glad to be having this conversation. I recently I did a, an episode of the podcast Sundays with Kate that is typically entirely dedicated to the filmography of Kate Blanchett, but there are divergences. Uh, there there are di. di um, there are like offshoot episodes where the host Bertata will focus on other performers. And he was like, do you want to, with you, Mount, you've been talking about Promising Young Woman. Do you want to come in and do my Carrie Mulligan episode? So I did a lot of catching up on Carrie Mulligan, a lot of like checking back in and, and thinking a lot about like, she's such a fascinating figure in that she's one of those, like she's kind of persona free. Like, and, and in the way that sometimes not having a persona I feel like is a persona in and of itself. And like, she's known for period pieces. Like she has that, she has that sort of expectation in her body of work. But as far as like a star persona where like you get a sense of where their media team is like pushing them in directions for like endorsements and certain designers. She really just like, she's an actress who shows up, does her work, does the like obligatory press rounds, then goes back to the English countryside. And with her sort of her and Kira Knightley with, I think they, they have a sort of similar approach with the way that like pursuing period pieces, because as, as Carrie has said, that is where she has found the consistently most substantial female roles to play because oftentimes they're based on works of literature. And so there's already all this character that you get from a bigger, more built out book that is being adapted to screen. So that's where she finds a lot of the more substantial parts she's offered. It provides this wonderful foil when you have such a body of, of that period work when she does contemporary films and she does characters that sort of play out of that like genteel drama of manners sort of situation it has a wonderful jarring quality to it and the the movie that i picked to talk about in that podcast was shame i'm okay with that movie i i i it's not my favorite movie but she in it is absolutely tremendous and to Mm. see carrie mulligan playing a chaos agent is such a thrill because it is so anathema to sort of everything else you expect from her. I think she's sort of like in in the minds of Americans, she's sort of a quintessentially British figure, just polite, quiet, like can deliver a biting, withering line, but somehow the emotional register doesn't change, but you've just been destroyed by her. And um, watching her in shame be this reckless, whirling nightmare of a person. And then watching her in this, not be an agent of chaos, but just be, but be a, a weapon of vengeance. I was so, I was enamored of her. I love this performance. And Carrie, I love this as a testament to, to her range. I love this as, I, I love seeing Fury Carrie. I absolutely love that. And I think a quint, a, a pivotal line in this movie that she sells so effectively in such a perfect way. It's very unshowy, but it's when she's in the cafe at her, her dead end job with Laverne Cox. And Laverne's like, why don't you move out? Like, why do you work at my shitty coffee shop? Why don't you get a better job? And Carrie in this, in that perfect delivery says, she's like, I could leave here and in 10 minutes I could have all that. I could have the job. I could have the man. I could have the marriage. I don't want it. I don't want it, really. And watching the ease with which she delivers that line and the sort of cold deadpan of it, the way that this movie is aware of the white female privilege, I think, at the center of it and the way Carrie very dryly navigates around it and the way Cassie is very aware of how she could benefit from it and the way she does and the way she opts out of it is such a fascinating sub-layer of this movie that her performance really brings to life. Yeah, I think like it's interesting you said Jordan about the the sort of <laughs> lack of persona. I think it, it is. I think she's been really clever about it because there is that so clever that sort of 
<laughs> and this is so true of so many British actresses. They just carry this vibe of like, I hopped out of a painting recently and it I've come the, to. Yeah, like, I hope that's not <laughs> like, yes. is that like somehow like, you know, centering my American experience to think that maybe? Because like, that's how I, I think that's how I and many Americans feel about British actresses. I think that's true in the UK as well, because I think okay. it's the, there's like the sort of like the poshness of her and the sort of slightly aristocratic, like, way that she carries herself she feels like money she feels like really quiet (laughs) (laughs) that old that old money that like maybe isn't even real money but it's like properties and non-liquid things that you can just like coast on for generations hey that's why they put in the great gatsby because she is that vibe (laughs) but that's that's the great thing about her is that i think she's self-conscious of that so Mm when she gets a movie like promising young woman she's like right i'm gonna it it feels like so much of a force because Mm -hmm. it's sort of unexpected to be like Mm -hmm. oh yeah no i'm not i'm not in a period gown now bitch yeah (laughs) absolutely (laughs) i think there's a few interesting points there that you bring up it's like there's her sort of lack of persona because she could have very easily I think especially from the start of her career been typecast as a period piece type actress and just do those types of roles and it's roles like shame Mm. I'd say which have a lot more bite and are a lot darker Mm. that kind of helped her helped her in a win and you know I'm not presuming to know whether this was a strategic decision or whether it's based on the roles that she was being offered at that time but the the role in shame was the one that I distinctly remember being like, oh, you're not what you're not doing the things that I expected you to do. Mm-hmm. You're not going down this route of a very particular set of roles. You are willing to make yourself be unpretty, unlikable on screen, mm-hmm. be not kind of in a, you know, wallflowery type Lana Del Rey's version of female damage that is acceptable and palatable for us to see but rather you're willing to go into the ugly bits Mm -hmm. of a role and really show it and be raw and Mm -hmm. and show that on screen and that kind of goes against the the primness sometimes of young British actresses who find success very early on and and logically then kind of are attempted to be typecast in certain Mm -hmm. roles I'm not sure if I'm getting completely off of a uh, on a tangent here with her but that's when i remember s- completely looking at her in a different way as a performer as an as a star in the making and it's interesting because uh, you brought up kira knightley and it's it's interesting because what... i think they're very good friends actually in life as well i don't I think would just, be like, surprised I, I think they're actually quite close <laughs> but uh, with kira knightley what's been interesting about her and i'm a huge kira knightley fan is that she had to do this Big that time. very very conscious push of going mm-hmm. hey i'm not i'm not pirates of the caribbean lady anymore so yeah. you know she went to do a dangerous method i think dangerous method for me was the turning point for her of me going mm. oh okay cool she can she can really like take on these complex it seemed like a shift roles. in it seemed like a shift in her, like certain parts of her self-determination about yeah. what she was like the way she was going to angle herself like when you mm. when you get to a point where you can like in a way sort of write your own ticket like as much as a person can like you want Kira Knightley for a role you become one of those people that people get a movie greenlit for and then you mm. can start making certain kinds of choices yeah but then I feel with Carrie Mulligan it's she's sort of been a little bit more I don't know I don't want to say sneaky about it because you know I the dig you know came out a few months ago and and that's Mm -hmm. her very much being like 
playing into the sort of gentle period <laughs> <Yeah>. lady. <laughs> she I mean, even she, has like she, has she even has like a wasting heart. disease. Yeah, like she's she even has heart. an actual <laughs> wasting disease instead of just like like existentially having a wasting disease. Yeah, and she's great. She's brilliant in that film, but she is. It, it's it's so interesting to see the way that she's constantly playing with the image as opposed to to doing mm. more of a, a straight rebellion against it. That's always mm-hmm. been my takeaway mm-hmm. for Carrie Mulligan. Well, and I, 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 one of my favorite interviews, uh, one of my favorite people I've ever interviewed is Alison Williams, um, talking to her twice, once for Get Out and once for The Perfection. And she, she doesn't take much work. She doesn't have to. So she's very selective about, about what she does. And at least to that point, like having only, those were really two film roles under her belt. Like I think that the two films of maybe three that Alison has done are those. And she was very aware and very intentional about how she said those roles existed in conversation with one another. She really wanted to play Rose in Get Out. Like she got that script and was dead set passionate. Like it's gotta be me. Because she was very aware of how she is perceived as the daughter of Brian Williams, as Marnie from Girls. And she knew exactly what people would expect to see from that character coming into it. So when she starts out subverting that as like, I'm the cool girl, actually. And like, I'm in this great, awesome, aspirational relationship with Daniel Kaluuya. She knew that she would have you in just the right grip when certain pivot points happen in that movie. And she absolutely exploited not only her roles at that point, but her public perception and wanted to do the same thing coming on the heels of Get Out, the way that perception and those expectations around her might have been adjusted, the way you would have been on the lookout for it. We would have been suspicious. She factored that in to why she much, how much she wanted to be in the perfection. And I fucking love metacasting. I don't expect everybody to have that thorough of like a, a long game sort of thought, like every actress to have that kind of long game thinking about the roles they take, certainly. But like, of course, one of the great castings of all time is Megan Fox and Jennifer's body. I uh, mean, of course. And then like, <laughs> you know, you want Carrie Mulligan because she's a great actress. Like for, for Emerald Fennell to be like, I Carrie was my dream. And then Carrie said, yes, Carrie's a great actress. But what she comes, what she brings with her is that ability for you, is that thing where you have to sort of juggle and like Tetris. It's a dissonance. Yes, the dissonance in your mind. And knowing that like, because there's that, even even when you've like watched the movies, that thing in your head might auto, the way you compartmentalize people might tell you that she's, oh yeah, that genteel period piece actress. When she's ferocious in movies like what, and I think it's called, um, what is it, Wildlife? Mm. And she yes. is a nightmare in shame. She has absolutely proven on multiple occasions that she will shred your expectations of a polite, domesticated figure and do it with just savagery and this, like, cold detachment. Because She said in an interview on, like, the Promising Woman press rounds or, yeah, I think it was the, oh, no, it was the shame press rounds where she was like, my instinct is to do the least, in ever, like I want the most minimalistic, naturalistic performance. So I have to communicate with my directors and tell them if you want me to go outside of that, you just need to you need to direct me through it because I can. But that's not where my instinct's going to be. And so mm. when she's having like a meltdown scene uh, in shame, she I think they they shot one of those where she's fighting with Michael Fassbender, and she went to Steve McQueen after and was like, "That was awful. I think that was terrible. What I just did. Like, was that the worst?" And he was like, "Actually, I think if you." Go a little harder and give what you think is the worst possible performance you could give. That's actually exactly what we're looking for. So let's do it again (laughs) and just be the worst actress you can in your own mind. And so like and coming into like something like Promising Young Woman, she's talked about how like one of her most mortifying professional experiences was shooting the pharmacy scene and how that was just 
singing in a pharmacy setup to Paris Hilton with a whole crew around. She wanted to die and was like, she didn't want to do it. She was like, Cassie wouldn't do this, Emerald. Cassie wouldn't do this. And Emerald was like, she's going to do it. I need you to do your job. (laughs) And so she relented. And it's amazing to see. It's amazing in that scene to watch. It plays out perfectly because you're watching her carry instinct through Cassie to to be reluctant at the start of the scene. And it, it is so genuine. You're like, yeah, it is what Cassie would do. So it gives it so much more oomph when it breaks through and she relents and she gives into Paris and she gives into Bo. And then she, you watch like the melding of Carrie and Cassie at the beginning of that and then fully like giving over to the Cassie of it. And it's just, an, it's, it's one of those great opportunities where knowing a little bit more about the actor, I think actually does enrich the part as opposed to like fully losing them in a role because to me so much of the joy of Cassie is the awareness of Carrie Mulligan and how I'm constantly being staggered backwards watching her performance as opposed to just being isolated and being like I don't even see her she's only Cassie like no I think the I think the performance is better when you think of Cassie and Carrie sort of like in a handshake in this movie I think there's an element as well of uh, subverting expectations. Perhaps subverting is a too strong a word, but definitely challenging expectations of mm-hmm. genre-specific audiences. Manipulating them, being aware of them, certainly. Yeah, Play- <laughs> playfully manipulating the expectations of genre audiences. Because this film, you know, when we alluded to the marketing and the positioning of it at the beginning, and we'll certainly go into it further down the line in this, uh, in this project, that it is being targeted as a as a revenge thriller, Mm -hmm. as a revenge film, with quite a lot of, like, horror indications. Mm -hmm. So the dissonance of putting Carrie Mulligan in a horror-adjacent role Mm -hmm. of a vengeful female figure is is already asking audiences who are very used to seeing that type of film and a whole nother set of audiences who are very used to seeing Carrie Mulligan and her, you know, acclaimed art house... BAFTA Oscar nominated performances that they've seen her in and in kind of glossier uh, big budget films it's already asking two very different audiences to put aside Mm -hmm. some put aside or and together embrace those expectations of her and I want to move into talking a little bit more about Cassie herself, not so much about Carrie and the the persona that we have of her, the expectations that we have of her, but really about the character that she embodies. So, Clarice, what did you make of Cassie as our as our lead and our villain at the same time? I guess she's one of those dual roles. If you look at her from one angle, she is the victim in a way and if you look at her from the other angle she is the villain of her own film i mean that is you've kind of hit the nail on the head of why i loved promising young woman because it's so wonderful to have all these films that are empowering and make you feel great and also make you feel like <laughs> there can be resolution like you can have release and you can move on but like i have dealt with things in my life very badly multiple mm-hmm. times <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have not been the yeah. great feminist icon. <laughs> and, You're like, as I sit before you today yeah. as a great as, feminist as a, icon, I have not lived up to that Feminist that role model. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have not lived up to that mm-hmm. image. And and what really, really struck me emotionally was this sense that the film, the character of Cassie, Emerald Fennel, were all saying hey like we see you and we 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 know that it's hard and Mm -hmm. you know what if you do completely the wrong thing if you react in the worst way possible if you don't know how to deal with your trauma 
then like I I see you, I recognize you. That's not that's not abnormal. Because like I think yeah. <laughs> it seems like such a weird thing to say, but like the weird the weird offshoot of all this like great feminist cinema is that it makes me feel like a dumbass sometimes because I'm like I (laughs) like am I a terrible feminist am I a bad person because I cannot embody these ideals that I constantly see in the films that I'm watching and and so to see Cassie like I, I really relate to her because I have done a really bad job of dealing with trauma. I've done a really bad job of dealing with men. I don't know how to do any of it. And and <laughs> so for me, really, that film, the character, it, it's all about just recognizing that, like, hey, she's she's really, she's not processing this in the right way. And instead mm-hmm. of, the, my, my favorite scene is really actually the confrontation with, with her and Nina's mother, played by Molly Shannon. Oh. Hmm. just how many arrows can you shoot me in the heart with before you run out like and, god and the line where she says like what what are you like a child like move on and then mm-hmm. to really confront her and say like this this is not this As she's is sitting not there good. holding a juice box that <laughs> exactly. she gave her <laughs> and and i think to have that confrontation of a cassie to be told like you are kind of being a child by doing this mm-hmm. but also for us to be able to follow her journey and to so deeply understand her pain her motivations to be inside of her head the entire way through the movie like that is such a release for me it's such a release for me to to be able to to sit with a character that flawed and to sit with a character that angry and messed up and and just like I don't know, I keep saying it, but just like not dealing with things in a great way. I think I think there's a real um, one of the things that really struck me the first time I saw this film, and definitely uh, I, I zeroed into it so much more intensely the second time around, is just that Cassie's in a state of arrested development. In and development might not be the right word. She, she but she is emotionally arrested. She sort of placated herself in this moment in her life and is just simmering with anger and rage and unable knowing that she can you know to echo what you were saying before Jordan that she can um go and she can have the man she can have the bigger job she can go back and you know correct all the the weird direction yeah, that her, her life has gone to thin but she- white upwardly mobile pretty american dream but I actually think that she cannot. And I think she's blocking herself from doing that because she mm-hmm. actually cannot move on. And we'll discuss kind of the more the spoilery bits of it later on in here. But one of the things that I wanted to pick you guys up on is the way that Cassie is presented in the first part of the film, when we, which is very much present in the trailer, which is very much a lot of the conversation and the positioning around Promising Young Women. It's like, this is a revenge this is a revenge film right we see her go into clubs we see her uh, pretend to be drunk we see her be this completely passive we see her kind of embody different characters different stereotypes i guess of Mm -hmm. drunk women at bars all of that incredibly misogynistic incredibly victim blaming uh, stereotypes of oh well you know she was asking for it it was like well what state were you in all of those things are manifested visually through Cassie's disguises in the film in the very in the very beginning how we're introduced. So I wanted to ask you kind of what do you make of Cassie in her disguises, which is how we meet her first and how we actually get to know her through the film? 
I think it's well, it's interesting. I I I don't know. I can't. It's hard not to feel like I'm plugging myself here. But I spoke to Carrie and I wrote about this movie and I asked them about it. This oh, idea cool. of of does Cassie have an identity anymore, or has she just basically given up so that she can embody Nina's memory? And they seemed a little like mixed on it. <laughs> but I but I I think for me the real takeaway was was yeah she she doesn't really want to she doesn't really want to be herself anymore and so she's almost more comfortable like Mm -hmm. living through these disguises and constantly just just shifting the way that she talks i think the the lunch scene with alison brie like it was a great piece of acting from carrie because she does that that awful like girl time like oh i'm so happy for you i'm so happy that everything's working out (laughs) (laughs) the whole like fake cutesy laugh and smiling so it's you know it's it's interesting because it's not it's not just about her putting on the disguises to go into the club like she changes the way that she acts around ryan bo burnham's character she changes mm-hmm. the way that she acts and even in the the, the cafe when she's with her friend played like by laverne cox like she's kind of there there she's sort of doing this cool girl vibe where she yeah. she doesn't give a fuck like i don't want to serve customers but then she goes home to her very <laughs> nice parents they're very she's nice like, oh hello mommy and daddy yeah. <laughs> like, let's have let's have dinner together in this beautiful nice house i really want to live in that house i know it's really kitschy but i love it <laughs> so so i came away from it not really having a great grasp of who like who the original cassie was before mm-hmm. any of this happened um i don't i don't really know yeah i don't i don't know who she was she just seems to be this this selection of identities that she's collecting together so that she can feel like she can wake up every day and and keep going with this and and i think that's part of the like addiction theme of promising young woman is that mm-hmm. she can't she can't end this because she doesn't have anywhere to go back to she doesn't have mm-hmm. like a, a body and a mind to go back to. That's long gone. So that's why she she just can't she can't let go of it. Well, I think too, um, like in the in the way that I in the way that I project onto a character like this, like, you know, in the in the history of, you know, a a, a needy Lesnicky, uh, in the history of like a wonderful interdependent Jennifer's body friendship sort of situation, sandbox love never dies. This movie is so important to me as as I've written about it as as a as an asexual love story. This is a movie about a love story between Cassie and Nina, and we just don't see, we don't ever get to see the other half of that that love story on screen because she's gone. And this movie is like it exists in the tradition more so of like a you know I I spit on your grave more of of like a Lady Snowblood more of a John Wick more of a you know you took my person of a of a punisher um you took my person and you took my life and now my my reaction to that is to to need to burn everything down and there's kind of this you know there's that that sort of dissociative space that this person lives in where they're not necessarily they're not necessarily a person contemplating suicide but they're a person who's not interested in being of this world and it's not necessarily a bridge that they're 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 psychologically like considering crossing um of like of of taking their own life but the idea of existing in this world is is moving through as just a mask as a shadow and you know she she dons her masks to go out into the world and to and to seduce these men and Carrie is such a adept actress at that sort of mask role that duality 
in a character where something terrible underneath the surface of like a pristine domesticity exists. And with Cassie, I, you know, the idea of her not having a, a personhood to go back to, I, the way, I think the best, the best moment of, of authenticity that we see of, of Cassie and her truest self is toward the end when she is finally talking about Nina, when she gives her, you know, I want to tell you about her. I want you to know. And the way she describes her and the way she so clearly lived her life up to the point of tragedy, enamored of Nina. Her anchor was Nina. She wasn't, she was an autonomous person. She she had her own identity, but so much of her was built on loving this person. And so much of her joy came from being in awe of her dear Nina. The way she talks about her is like hearing somebody talk about, it's like hearing a widow speak about like their their deceased partner and the way you know I was so like I couldn't believe the way she says like I couldn't believe she wanted to be my friend and when she says like you know she didn't give a fuck about what anyone thought apart from me and you get that awareness vividly of the pride of placement she had in Nina's life too this person who was such a sort of idol to her and who was my fucking god I, I lucked ass backwards into being her best friend that was her person. And so the idea, like, and I feel like in my in my life, like of somebody on the ace spectrum, I my friendships are my love stories. Those are the great loves of my life. And so my favorite way of I'm a very joyful, happy person, and my favorite way of realizing that joy is being in service of them and doing for them and giving to them. And to have be so inextricably linked from another person, to have the primary way that you sort of see the light in the world go out. Um then what light is there left? And what more could, what better could you be? What more could you know to be than sort of living your life as a vessel for this person's memory when your favorite part about you was them? And I think the way that Cassie, the way that the devastation of that character is played, that sort of just like detached, reactionary sort of glibness at everything, it does such an amazing job conveying that sense of that, non-sexual intimacy that is absolutely it can exist tantamount to sexual and romantic intimacy that people don't really give the time of day to in conversation there's just friends and then there's something more there's your significant other and i put air quotes around all of those terms because those are just things that are you know mm-hmm. delivered to us that we are supposed to organize our relationships emotionally in that hierarchical sense because that's what we're always taught and told and that's what fiction tells us too it doesn't really give a space for that sort of different kind of realizing of of an intimate companion and this movie gives the kind of import in that devastating role of Cassie to actually it is this that it is this meaningful and it it is the center of a universe I think there's a deep sadness to Cassie and I think it comes from part of that element that you're talking about Jordan but also the the indifference of everyone else to the intensity of that sadness because yes. there is no there is no word to mourn her friend mm-hmm. her nina mm-hmm. that relationship that is as significant and as important to her as her family as any romantic relationship yep. and i think to echo something that you were talking about earlier clarice is that she, there is no identity that she can fit into so she sort of is feels stuck in her in the mm-hmm. cassie that she was at say age 20 21 Mm -hmm. whatever age they were when they were in university in med school whatnot Mm -hmm. everything about her from her 
appearance, to her attire, to even the way that she, I think, relates to to some of the world, to her parents, mm-hmm. to Ryan, the way that that whole courtship, it's as infused by the trauma as it is by this inability to, well, her lack of having evolved into the person that she would have been if she hadn't been so stuck yeah. because of what happened, because of the trauma. And I wanted to move on to talk about something that has been kind of permeating the conversation about this film. And it's very much kind of part of the way that it's presented as well. And that's what I alluded to at the beginning, like her her as an Avenger. Yeah. What What do you think about cassie's way of taking revenge and how do you think it fits into our expectations of what we you know what we expect from a revenge thriller or a revenge uh, a revenge horror film there's a whole you know subgenre that has been massively it's my favorite subgenre. About. it's my favorite collection <laughs> your favorite of subgenre one of my one of my most admired horror writers and academics alexander heller nicholas has just published goddess She's just published a second edition of her her seminal rape revenge study. Um, and I wanted well, the question is that like, what do you think about Cassie as an Avenger, as a as an as an angel of vengeance, basically, in this film? It feels like it's it's not quite it's not a it's not a criticism of it, and it's not quite like a deconstruction of the idea, but it feels like the film is very much just offering a slightly different look at it i mean i you know this is a genre that i also love but i i have always come away with this thought that you know unintentionally <laughs> and and you know and there's many powerful things and great things about the genre but there's this idea that the rape revenge theme it always puts the onus on the victim right it's the victim mm-hmm. is the one who acts they are the ones who seek the revenge. They are the ones that achieve it. Like, it is all about their action versus kind of the passiveness of the others. And so I, f- I feel like this film is going, well, that is is that always the best way to look at it? Because, yeah. you know, in, in real world, that's the thing, the rape revenge, it is kind of a fantasy in many ways. Mm-hmm in the real world that we exist in do is it is it as satisfying i think it asks more of a question than creates yeah. a statement <laughs> it goes i think that's, I think that's yeah a good point. like how i think yeah. the the movie is, is asking you like how do you feel about it is this satisfying does if cassie just went on a murder spree and killed everybody would she feel whole again afterwards? Would she feel like mm. she could return to her old life? Or would she still be stuck with that grief? Mm. I And I feel like it's, you know, it's kind of hinting that the answer is no. But yeah, for me, it's, it's she's sort of not, she's kind of not the Avenger. She's, she's just an extremely sad woman trying to get trying to get somebody to notice. I think that's the mm-hmm. really recurring theme for me is, is she doesn't even want revenge. She just wants somebody to sit her down and say that what happened was really fucking awful and no one mm-hmm. paid for it. And that sucks. Sorry, sucks is not a, <laughs> a great yeah. word for it. That's a really... Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, you know, you, you get... But it's it's validation. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah but, just, is there, but is there a word that captures such magnitude as that? Exactly. Like you kind of just have to stall out and go... 
I'm sorry, that fucking sucks. It fucking sucks. Yeah. I can't, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot relate to you adequately enough to think of the crystal clear, perfect right word to sum up what you're feeling, but I can just say, God, that fucking sucks. And that's yeah. all she wants to say. I feel like that is all she ever wanted to hear is someone to, to say that to her and to recognize that. I don't think she cared about, you know, these people you know getting their comeuppance or, or people even the guys mm. that she's doing these these late night sort of i don't even want to call it ruses with In, i don't think she yeah even entrapment, cares about entrapment, entrapment. entrapment. <laughs> yeah you know i don't think she even cares about that she just in the back of her brain she just wanted someone to tell her to recognize what she went through and what nina went through and that's it one of the most incredible twists and it's not even a twist because it comes you know like after the the credits basically mm-hmm. after the the initial credits is that i fully i don't know about you guys but i fully expected that she would be murdering the men that she 100 oh yeah <laughs> i, I kind of wanted it not gonna lie i was like yes you go kill adam brody please yeah all kill in him. all in on that <laughs> I think I still remember him from Low Shoulder because I've rewatched Jennifer's Body so many times recently, <laughs> mainly because of you, Jordan, that I'm now like, just kill that motherfucker. Yeah, but yeah. I that- mean, honestly, kill <laughs> Seth Cohen, and I'm on the fucking record with that. So yeah, kill Seth but- Cohen. <laughs> I think even in the first five minutes of this film, and it's a lot of those, uh, a lot of those bits are in the trailer and the promotional materials are about this drunk, this image of the drunk Cassie yeah. being taken somewhere by a guy, a nice guy, mm-hmm. an amenable guy. He's just trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll discuss all the nice guy of tropes course. and the way that this film very cleverly plays with them in a, in a later episode of this mini pod. But I wanted to touch upon kind of the expectations of her actually committing violence against them and actually to tap into what you were saying Clarice is that all she wants from them in that moment when she switches when she goes from pretending to be drunk pretending to be out of control pretending to be vulnerable to a a, an illegal extent Mm -hmm. and when she switches and she makes them notice and realize hey I'm not the the woman that you thought I was they don't really care about who she is. They care. Mm-hmm. They look at her as a piece of meat. She's someone who is not going to be able to protest or defend herself or consent. They never give a shit about consent or mm-hmm. they never really give a shit about who she is. But they're also very cleverly, I think, in those scenes playing with they know in that scenario that whatever happens, she will either dismiss it or it will be not worth her while following up on that or filing any sort of charge or complaint or anything like that because of the kind of the association of oh well you know she was drunk Mm -hmm. it happens it's bad sex that's all it is but when the movie played around and twisted it to no she's not gonna murder anyone she's Mm -hmm. not even carrying a weapon Mm -hmm. she doesn't actually want anything from them actually i realize now just listening to you to you speak before Clarice, all she really wants for them is for them to say, actually, oh, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to do. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to do. Yeah, she, yeah, she's always trying to get them, and she does that at multiple points throughout the film. She's trying to get a man to vocalize exactly what he did, and they never say it. When the one mm. who does, they becomes an ally. 
Like when when she mm-hmm. has the moment with Alfred Merlina where he is where she, she he's like, "Are you here to hurt me?" And she's like, "Do you want me to hurt you?" Like when they have that moment and he like fucking sobs on her lap and everything, that that becomes like, "Okay, like I forgive you, but like now you have to do something for me." So it becomes a it becomes a transactional relationship at least that point instead mm-hmm. of her being like, "You still want to fuck me?" And they're like, "No." And she's like, mm, "They never do." And I think what, um, one of the, the, first of all, I would like to address a critique of this movie, which I think is just one of those, like, people can not like this movie. People can definitely not like how it ends. I fully get that. But I don't like the critique of, you mean she was just doing this all this time and none of these men killed her? Fuck it. Guys, it's the terms and conditions of the movie. She's not killing these men. Like, this, that is our suspension of, like, that is, that is just part of the narrative structure that this is the device. So, like, and it is, like, like, let's just accept that those are the terms and not be like, I can't believe nobody would have killed her. It's like, well, we can get to more on that conversation in a bit. But, like, we can get to the price of violence, okay? But, like, I, I think what this movie, I think a real strength of this movie is, um, that every time, like, in the terms of her, of that, like, anti-heroine, every time she, like, gets essentially a victory, like, a quote-unquote win, you see her kind of have a, a an experience of revulsion to what how it's had to come. Like, there's a price to pay for every sort of, quote-unquote, triumph that Cassie has in this movie when she gets the dean of the school, Connie Britton, to submit to her by, you know, spinning this fiction for her about her daughter. Um... She goes away from that, has a flip out, and beats the shit out of a guy's car at an intersection, and then just has a moment of crisis where she's just standing in the street, sort of at odds with herself. When everything plays out with Allison Bree, she doesn't have positive feelings about what she's done. It's not like, ha 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 ha, write your my little black book. Like, it's, she's not like doing a dance. You see her feel the devastation of just the fact of cyclical violence and how fucked up it is. Like, this movie is very much about how violence makes you feel, violence makes people feel shitty. And then if you choose to do violence in response, you might get a momentary rush from that. But like, a perpetuating cycle of violence is the problem here. And I don't think it's saying that like, oh, yeah, Cassie's the reason for that. Cassie's at fault. But it's like, yeah, look how much this perpetuated cycle of violence from this catalyzing incident and the lack of recourse from it just as a chain reaction is ruining life after life after life after life. And I really, really like that aspect of it. And I, I, there's a, um, a piece about there, the, you know, the reaction of like, I don't like how this movie goes because I find it unfulfilling and unsatisfying. And then the way I've seen other movies cited as examples of movies that do this right with things like MFA, with things like revenge. I love MFA. I love revenge. I also have those movies. So if this movie is going to do something different and give a different take on how this sort of narrative plays out, then I think we only benefit from that as having variety. Because these movies do not unmake MFA. They do not unmake revenge. They do not unmake cold hell. They do not unmake the perfection. But this is simply a different perspective on a, on a genre that is due for so much more different perspective and different kind of conversation and different kind of points of view. And the fact of like churning what you want out of it and giving like a sort of, you know, taking what you thought was going to be a sweet revenge milkshake and giving you like a, a shower, spo- a sour spoiled milkshake in return. Mm. Like we need more texture in these kinds of stories. We need, we need innovation in the form like this. We need this, like I may destroy you to me that this movie gets made and it takes this different approach, which is a bit more offensive 
says that, okay, can we finally be ready to include other types and categories of people who deserve to have their stories told in this format as well? Because we've now taken this leap into a different kind of mainstream success and a different sort of mainstream message versus like, you know, a Miss 45. All right, now let's open the gates. Like, let's let this be a more intersectional, varied and textured space than it ever has been. And I, while this movie's job is, is while this movie's role is not to play that intersectional is not to work in that intersectional capacity. And I'm frankly glad it didn't because it didn't need to punch out of its weight class like that. It didn't need to underserve the stories of different categories of people. Like, you know, this movie is very much like white feminism, but I would rather see this movie do a good job with white creators and white people at the center of it than the same filmmaking team underserve or not do justice to or take too big of a reach out of their lane to tell a story that wasn't theirs to tell and not do a good job because these these kinds of movies these sort of vengeance movies are simply too important to not nail every bit of nuance that you're going in for i think yeah i think that's something that keeps getting lost in the conversation is that the reason that you know we all have very different takes from this movie because it's it's something of a universal experience like the yeah. pain and the trauma and and everyone reacts differently to it and so i i think i really respect emerald fennel for for saying this is how i want to tell this story this is how it resonates with me mm -hmm. like the experience mm -hmm. of being a woman this this is what it's like <laughs> in mm -hmm. my head in my viewpoint and mm -hmm. and yeah i totally get it for people who for people where it doesn't resonate or it doesn't feel right it makes them feel comfortable like that is so so valid but as you said yeah. i think for me <laughs> and 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 for maybe all three of us like watching this movie i was like i i really understand this i really understand mm -hmm. her viewpoint and i and i feel fully connected to what she's trying to say the idea of the way she the way she um reacts to consequences of her own actions I think it speaks to the conviction she has in this sort of pursuit that she's on and, and the way in which mm -hmm. she's calcified into this, this lifestyle. Because like, even when you see her taking those, those losses, like those wins that become sort of emotional losses and absorbing them, she continues on regardless. She pushes mm -hmm. forward in spite of the fact that like, she kind of feels sick sometimes and she feels really upset sometimes about the way this is sort of metastasizing as a result of her decisions, but she pushes forward anyway because it is simply that fundamental to who she is at this point. And I think that speaks to the desperation and the clarity that she has around how much she has to resolve this in her mind. I think there's the calcification of Cassie to a, to a degree is one of the saddest elements of the film. And I think mm. it's one that is much more aligned with the theme of addiction, mm. of Cassie almost being a addicted to reliving the trauma and reliving the anger i mm -hmm. don't think she's capable of letting go i don't mm -hmm. think it, in as the way that she is when we meet her in the film and it certainly kind of goes off the rails towards the end as well there is she's very methodical she's extremely smart she's very very good at containing herself very good at presenting that mm -hmm. cool girl image yeah. that you were mentioning before but it is as much as everything else a performance and occasionally that mask slips and it's in those moments where you see the rawness mm -hmm. of her and the rawness that is much less much less cinematic mm. 
than the kind of the the female Avengers that we've totally. seen so far in revenge films. Like this is not Uma Thurman and Kill Bill. This yeah. is not Miss Forty Five. There is something that is so, and I think this is a relatable um, aspect that you're rest- you know correct me if I'm wrong, Clarice, but when i was listening to this these are the images these are the scenes the shots that i think of when i felt like i saw more of cassie and i felt it so strongly in my bones because it is still so uncommon it is still so unusual at least for me to see and i seek these films out actively to see this extremely messy raw flicker of emotion and kind of unresolved emotion mm-hmm. that's like right there on the surface but you know there's the performance there's a performance of femininity there's a performance of coolness there's the performance of you know the different masks that she wears to entrap her the, the guys that she goes after in the clubs and everything not i should actually correct myself she doesn't actively go after them she just puts herself she, yeah, in she, a place she honeypots she, she honeypots yeah them. she lets them come to her but she doesn't actively do anything she just lets them do the thing that they were going to do to someone else anyway they were looking for the opportunity to you know take a woman home that was too drunk to consent she wasn't really she wasn't really tricking them into it it's i i don't know if this is because you've said the word avenger like quite a few times (laughs) but it's it's made me think of of something i've enjoyed a lot recently is wandavision uh, the, the TV show. Oh, please don't spoil it for me. I haven't watched it yet. It's all right. I'm going to talk it in very, very vague terms. But... <laughs> I'm behind. I know. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. it's okay. But I, it, it strikes me that there is a little bit of a thematic connection between these two things. And it is the, it mm-hmm. is the idea of corrupting grief, which I'm realizing we don't, we don't see very often. I think grief is, ugly. is we're so used to seeing it presented as as an empowering thing like my god my son died and now I'm going to become a superhero and it's going to be great and I'm going to become stronger <laughs> it's from be it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like like so often that's the storyline and and what was very refreshing about WandaVision is to see a, a mainstream story about somewhere where something where grief is a fully corrupting force and it eats mm-hmm. away at this character mm-hmm. and and again there is this idea of the the performative aspect of it because i guess you know like the vague concept of wandavision she like it's like a sitcom yeah, yeah. And so i'm trying to like talk about it without ruining it <laughs> i'm like i'll just take out my headphones and walk yeah. away for a while you know wave when you're back but the wandavision there's this whole thing about the performative asset because she she cannot process her trauma so mm-hmm. she's funneling it into this this sort of different reality and this different version right. of herself and, she, and scarlet witch can create realities and bend which it is quite all. yeah it's more the literal version of this but i think that yeah. is a little bit what cassie is doing like she mm-hmm. the grief is has eaten away at her soul basically and and so she has to sort of project these other things and project the femininity and and project the the cool girl and project all this because and also live yeah. a very regimented life to keep her putting mm. one foot in front of the other. And she wakes up, she goes to her shitty job, her you know shitty cafe with like the coolest boss ever, and it's actually fine. Yeah, it seems like goes a great to, job. Goes to job, <laughs> yeah, goes to job, goes out to honeypot men, comes home late goes back to work like she puts one foot in front of the other because she has this Mm -hmm. routine that gets her through 
And that to me is like, it's so profoundly relatable, such a profoundly relatable portrait of grief that I, I realize I am unused to seeing that, mm-hmm. you know, gr- grief is, is really like destructive. It's a really destructive force. And mm-hmm. the first way to combat that, I think, is to recognize it. And we're really, we're really bad at doing that as a society. Yeah. <laughs> so good for this movie and good for WandaVision. I can't believe I'm plugging a Marvel <laughs> property in this podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I- no, don't apologize. <laughs> I kind of knew, I kind of knew that this might happen because I kept saying the word Avenger, but it, <laughs> You were you were incepting word. us. You were incepting the conversation as well. Oh, it was Clarice's idea all along. I think you're very right in both one division and this film has this in common in that it is corrupting. It's also very um debilitating. Because one of the things, you know, to echo both of your points is that Cassie does go through the motions, but she's not really living. She's not yeah. really living she's her life. Yeah, she's she's surviving. She's going through it, but there is nothing in her life that she can move towards. And there is one little spark of it with her with her budding romance with Ryan. Mm-hmm. Like those are the moments where she feels like she is not just letting the guard down or coming out of her shell or kind of those kind of more basic expressions, but actually letting herself be alive yeah. for a split second. And it takes so much effort. And it takes a long time in the film for her to kind of engage with a whole nother side of life that she mm-hmm. had just completely shut down the door on everything associated with romance or seduction or just you know relationships are completely you know contaminated by this trauma by this grief so you know when she's she's still living with her parents she's dressing in a way that we can you know sort of understand is the way that she would dress when she was a teenager when she was a young student like everything is just not moving forward so those baby steps in that relationship with Ryan are so vital and it makes them it makes the film even so much more heartbreaking because you see the possibility mm-hmm. of Cassie just a flicker of the possibility of who Cassie could be who she is and the rest of her of her life is just this i don't know calcified existence that isn't really a full life and i i think it like speaks just miles to how impressive the performance is is the fact that we can get all of this like a person who is so she doesn't say a ton she doesn't say a ton and so much of what carrie so much of what cassie is and what carrie delivers is just through the performance through the like tilt of her head and the lilt of her voice and her body language like Mm. it is just like that whole we won't unpack it yet but like that whole in the way that there's a pivotal uh, confrontation with her and Ryan later in the film, the, her physicality in that scene with him and the way she weaponizes herself is so, and like the, a, a top-notch heartbreaking moment in this movie is when they have like their cute little first date and he's like, oh my God, we're at my house. Uh, do you want to come upstairs? And she's like, oh God, um, it's no, it's really not you. It's me. But when she walks away from that and she kicks over that trash can, she's Mm. so fucking disappointed that it can't just be okay. That it can't just be like, she had a nice thing, but it can't just stay nice. And there's just still too much inside of her stopping her from 
giving over to that moment and being like, yeah, let's go upstairs and see what happens. Like she has, and she's not like, she's not like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, leave that guy with his dick in his hand. And I feel good about that. Cause I'm a woman with self-determination. She wanted to go, but she fucking, she couldn't, she actually just couldn't. And she's so upset about losing that moment that she walks mm. around and just like fucking kicks something over. There is something that I did want to talk about that we've sort of skirted around a lot and it's the it's the style of the film and mm. it's this hyper feminine very millennial oh yeah stylistic thank you like, emerald for this representation yes <laughs> the, the millennial punk mafia we needed this yeah. <laughs> uh, glossier is not enough yeah. we need a whole ass movie exactly so, <laughs> I wanted to ask you kind of both about your thoughts on the on the <laughs> on the very hyper feminine mm-hmm. color palette and style of this film, but also on the very particular millennial style of it. I I mean this this means so much to me because I am so like love movies from the eighties. Great stuff. If I have to see another fucking homage to an eighties slasher movie. Because, like, the people who greenlight movies grew up then and it makes them feel good to watch, like, references to their childhood, I'm gonna fucking throw up. Like, I will watch that movie, I'll probably enjoy it, but this, like, can't we agree that Stranger Things jumped the shark and we've done 80s homage and it can go? Like, it is time to let the emergent millennial filmmakers put their cultural touch points in movies. I want period pieces set in 1990-fucking-eight. I want period pieces set in 2003 that have tank tops that go down to our knees, that act as a dress over our jeans where we have four jackets on. I want it all. I want that life. Blake Ring. I I feel like you're describing Blake Ring. (laughs) (laughs) one of one of my great professional one of my great i'm gonna call it professional works of all time is like a 20 thread bling ring treat tweet storm i went on while watching it one night so don't worry i'm right with you there on bling ring (laughs) and just like to see the sensibility coming through from emerald of something that is so connectable to like my white middle class comfortable like life and and personality and sensibility to see that in a movie bleeding through so strongly is like to me it's like yes we are here these are our aesthetics these are our illusions these are our inspirations and it makes me so fucking happy to see that so radiantly blaring across the screen and what it does in this movie is I had an interesting conversation with my friend April Wolf she uh, co-wrote Black Christmas with Sophia to call. And we were talking about how like, cause when the Promising Young Woman trailer came out and there was a lot of hype around it. And I remember a lot of men in my mentions being like, oh, I'm so psyched for this movie. And then versus when her trailer came out for her movie, there was immediate blowback. There was immediate, it was the whole like, let's tank this shit on IMDb before it even comes out kind of movement. And we talked about the way that like, rape revenge movies are great and we want them as long as they're sexy as Mm. long as they're cool and women killing men that's so hyperbolic and extreme like even dudes can get on board with that like they want to see the avenging angel too like she's fucking badass i love the layer of carrie mulligan that we get in this movie where she joined like step on my throat like thirst twitter like i didn't know i wanted to see carrie mulligan like roll her eyes at me and spit in my coffee but apparently i do and i'm glad i know that about her now but like to have that I'm glad I know that about myself now I'm glad I know that about myself I'm thrilled this is great information to have this enriches my life thank you Carrie thank you Emerald thank you Lucky Chap and thank you Toxic String Arrangement cover and so I what this movie does is it gives you all of these things that invite your voyeurism 
It gives you all of these things that are like really and not like the sets aren't ironic. Like the the, the sets, it's not meant to be ironic. It's not like oh, putting there's a zero crazy, irony. Yeah, it's not like putting a crazy anachronistic needle drop in like violence of another era. Like that. That's not that's that's not this. It's not a wink and a nod to me in that way. It's just like let's create the most like stylish and inviting atmosphere and the way that it like when we first kind of see cassie at her job and the way the camera pans up her body and mm. you see like the 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 very like i think it has like cherries on it very like form-fitting it looks like unitard top that she's wearing and it travels up her body and you see her waist and her back and her beautiful blonde hair and then she's like mouthing on something like she always in this movie constantly chewing on something and it's very seductive. It's very inviting. It's doing all those things that tell you, like, this is a sexy revenge thriller where people are going to die and she's going to be hot. And it has that effect of, like, I love celebratory violence movies. Give me that shit all day. But what this movie does is it entices you with those things because it knows you respond to them. And then it gives you ugliness. But it never changes. It gives you, like, emotional, intellectual ugliness. But it never changes yes. the beauty of its surroundings. And so it forces you constantly if you're willing to engage in it that way, to interrogate your role in these kinds of stories and why you want this violence and what this violence does for you and why the bloodlust is such a native experience. As it gives you this thing that constantly keeps telling you you want to hang around in this world, even when it's making you feel worse and worse and worse and worse. And that is such an amazing thing to do in this genre in particular, where like you take the sort of Carol Clover, men, women, and chainsaws, like the way that she talks about how men in the audience would start, like, you know, people in the audience start by cheering the killer, including men in the audience. But then mm -hmm. as the final girl comes to power, they find that their surrogate on screen is actually the woman. And they find themselves yeah. rooting for this feminine central character who is killing people that mirror more of them than anybody else in the room and what this movie does is it's like it's one of those movies where hey guys you're gonna root for the sexy killer but in fact this is about rape culture and it's about disappointment and constantly being <laughs> let down by the men around you and you're horrible constantly and it's relentless and there's actually no good about it and but it keeps giving you fucking jams and it keeps giving you millennial pink and framing carrie in these like these deified kinds of ways mm -hmm. with like halos and crowns and things like that around her and it just, the the dissonance of that, I think, is such a fun, sumptuous part of experiencing this movie and invites you to participate in it further than just being like, I'm just, I'm just experiencing and enjoying the lines and content in front of me. What a fucking coup of style in this film. Absolutely. <laughs> and I feel like there's something quite clever and challenging about the way that it's so interesting the way that people talk about the style like they they really want to like unpack it and go there must be there must be such a conscious choice about why would she do pink why would she do britney spears mm -hmm. and really it's like yeah because that's just her emma fennel's aesthetics and and that's it's what she yeah, yeah and for these me, are the clothes her sister her sister made these exactly. wardrobe items she's like i love the clothes my sister wakes makes why wouldn't Cassie wear that cool shit that I like? Well, it's so interesting to me because, like, the aesthetics of Promising Young Woman are the aesthetics of, of my brain, you know? It's, I mean, yeah. I you probably can't see my flat, but, like, my flat looks like Promising Young Woman. Like, my Pinterest board looks like Promising Young Woman. And right. to me, that that is a level of normal. And so I, I think yep. having her just going full in on the aesthetic but then to deal with such a nuanced and complicated topic is a mm -hmm. real great, it's a great triumph of the aesthetic itself. It's like the validating idea of, of like, this shit isn't just nonsense. It's not just nonsense! <laughs> 
nonsense. <laughs> it's not just nonsense. Exactly. I think this is the most important thing, and I and I and I want to say it's deliberate. I'm gonna say it's deliberate because I've interviewed into, uh, Emerald Fennel, and I and I asked her this specific question. It's like, talk to me about the aesthetic choices well like it's there in the text it's 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 smart but it's smart because even now even in 2021 it still seems like a a bold statement to say Mm -hmm. you know girly stuff is not inherently stupid yeah you know that we just like you know that dismissing women and, and and a certain category of women and things they like isn't just like what we should do inherently because girls am i right so silly so it's that that thing of you know what you were mentioning before the emotional ugliness that exists in the film coexisting with the poppy, beautiful, hyper millennial, yeah. hyper saccharine aesthetic of it. One thing can exist with another just because Cassie wears pink and mm-hmm. pastel blues and has multicolored nails mm-hmm. does not mean that her pain and her grief and the yeah. experiences that she went through and the experiences that she went through v- via Nina mm-hmm. and that rage is not valid. The fact that rage comes in pastel pink in Promising Young Woman does yeah. not make it any less furious and i think this is one of the the kind of an aesthetic dissonance that exists in this film which i think strikes a lot of people perhaps in a in a off-putting way Mm -hmm. maybe because of that thing of like there's a certain set of expectations around revenge films there's a certain set of expectations around carrie mulligan as a person as a Mm -hmm. as a film star and there's a certain level of expectations around pink colored girly movies yeah right it's the same reason why teen girl movies have consistently been dismissed it's the same reason why now and then it's still not on fucking blu-ray i will not be going on this rant on this podcast but i will eventually on another one it's why birds of prey was so fucking disrespected exactly oh (laughs) clarice's arms in the air anna's arms in the air goal but this is the thing like promising young woman is so normal to me because i love pastels and i love girly things and i'm depressed like those things just (laughs) like and i'm goth okay yeah and i'm also goth like those things are my it's my reality so Mm -hmm. it's so strange to me to see people like dissecting it or acting like it's weird because it's it's just Mm -hmm. essentially saying oh your entire reality shouldn't function it doesn't make sense but yeah sometimes it it couldn't possibly be natural or intuitive (laughs) to you it has to be a a statement or a performance of something well i I think it's like like that that weird (laughs) (laughs) i think it's that like weird performance of your taste right that your taste must be a reflection of your inner being and you can be in torment and depressed or or an anxious person like i'm a depressed and anxious person but and also there is a there is an expectation of how you should look and behave depending on what you're into or what mm-hmm. you dress like so if i wear a pink frilly dress mm-hmm. that covers up my tattoos and i don't do the golf makeup and i don't do the dark lipstick and the dark nails then like, <laughs> it's just like cassie you look just like Cassie. You're a girly girl, and then the mo, and then you have to perform another way, say in a genre space or a mm-hmm. horror space or any places like that. In the same way, you have to perform being a professional. The costumes in this film, to bring it back to to promising young woman, the costumes in this film and how she picks and chooses the way that she knows people will perceive her based on how she presents herself yeah. is a constant daily. I'm not going to say it's a millennial thing. I think it's a universal thing for Mm -hmm. everyone, particularly women, I would say, female identifying persons. But Mm -hmm. the fact that the film visually 
leans in so hard into the girly aesthetic. Yeah. I think is a is a big choice yeah. for all of the reasons because of the genre that it inhabits, because exactly. of Carrie Mulligan, because of the ugliness of Cassie's trauma and her and her emotions and her rage. All of that becomes too complicated. I th- I don't think it's complicated. I think yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I I see this. I see exactly oh, yeah, what feels, this means. It, yeah, it feels very intuitive to me as a package. <laughs> yeah. It feels natural. I was like, oh, I, I I see exactly everything that's going on here. But I can see why for some people it's like these are too many things. How is it possible that this coexists <laughs> in a single person, let alone a single movie? I mm-hmm. how can you play me toxic by Britney Spears and also talk about rape culture? I mean, one I, of the one of the great one of the great needle drops of the past. I don't know, however long is like true horror. Is this movie opening with Charlie XCX singing "Boys," watching Dockers thrusting dicks at my face? <laughs> I was like, I, when I watched that on the theater. Thank God I was in the theater and it was like big, and I, I like I was watching it and my jaw just ah uh, just fell. I was like, this is. This is so horrifying. Get me out of get me out of this place. And I was like, this is the perfect way I need to feel watching these khakis just thrust in my face. And then it pulls out like because it's it's like it's kind of slow motion and it's the Charlie XEX song. And then it pulls out and it's just like a normal bar and the music's at like a reasonable volume. And it's just people white dancing on dance where it's like, oh, yeah. And then it takes all that kind of like horror and is like, look at these banal idiots like look at these fucking douches <laughs> it's like oh my god the shock of what just happened to me just now we just got started and on that note what did you make of the of the music of the film oh god i love this soundtrack so much i have i have the physical cd of it i there are, there are there's are, the cds that i have in my car are all taylor swift cds all of them and not just like all I have is Taylor Swift. No, I have all the Taylor Swift CDs because I need to have them on CD. And uh, and the and promising young woman soundtrack. That's what's in my car. What a great profile of me. And <laughs> I love it. I love it. I have, she has no choice but to stand, and she does. I and do. <laughs> I cannot get I the one I the one I play on repeat the most though is drinks. Um, which is by Sin or Sign, C-Y-N, I don't know how to pronounce it, but this soundtrack is like, this is just like your cool friends playlist that they made for mm. you. They were like, hey, you want to have like a, want me to put together a pregame playlist? Like, let me send something over. Like, let's set something up on Spotify. It's like, this is fucking it. This is the jam. So by the time you get to like the toxic strings, everyone's drunk and ready to go out. Pre-game is perfect. That's the perfect descriptor for the soundtrack. <laughs> it feels like it. It feels yeah. like a pre-game playlist. Yeah, and it's, it is the ironic thing of like, yeah, the soundtrack in itself feels really empowering and great, and I feel <laughs> great does. about myself, contrasted to like, yeah, this this very <laughs> incredibly depressing, like soul-sucking movie. <laughs> I I love I love that contrast again because it, I it's, love it. Like those realities can exist at the same time in one person. yep yep exactly because we are all rich tapestries and this movie understands that so jordan clarice i'm conscious that we need to talk about the most divisive element of this film so before we move on to spoiler territory I mean, this feels like a stupid ass question to ask, considering we've just been recording for an hour and 20. If anyone is listening up until this point, 
I admire your life choices. Yeah. <laughs> but how would you recommend people go into this film? Albert, I thought when you said the most divisive, I thought you were going to bring up the pharmacy scene. I don't know why. <laughs> some, people, some people just hate pop chips. Yeah, I was going to say, Clarice is really torn on Paris Hilton then, I guess. <laughs> no, I loved it. I felt very catered to by that scene. <laughs> yeah, I would really break form and be enamored of a man if that was suddenly like what was offered to me. I'd be like, wow, yeah. a man? That I'm interested in? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that was a Let's very sing. successful I'm so read. sorry, guys. I'm going to have to disagree with you on this. I would run for the fucking hills if that happened to me. It's divisive. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I support that. I support that. Anna is not part of this white nonsense. <laughs> I'm not a, this particular I'm all in. I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, yeah. Good for you. Courage of your convictions. Is it because it's that song? It's that. Oh no! It's just it's really bad dancing. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, but I'm a Taylor Swift. I'm like the I call myself the Taylor Swift dancer because you know Taylor Swift always acts out the lyrics, which is yeah. The she has Taylor has five most moves. Embarrassing thing ever. Like, that's also me. So I have a commissioned painting of Taylor Swift above my bed. So oh wow! That's where we're coming from. Here. I love that. Love it's it. beautiful. It's like a pop art. It's like neon, like purple and neon blue, and the lips are red <laughs> glitter. It's fucking awesome. I love that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that went, I got totally off topic. Yeah. How would you recommend people go into it? Because we've been talking about <laughs> so many different angles of the film before even getting into spoiler territory. I I would say, um, you know, um, if you if at this point it's possible to go in a uh, cold, I would. I would say if you are, and, and this is something I want to be really mindful of with people, and it's something I've had a couple conversations about with people in DMs um, who have asked me, like, knowing the sort of framework of it, is, like, this something that, like, I want to watch this with my partner, my girlfriend, whatever. She has had X sort of experience. Do you think this is okay for her? I've had this kind of experience. Do you think this is okay for me? I have had, like, how how deeply into spoilers do you want me to get? Because I want you to feel prepared going into this. If you, um, it is very much uh, trigger warning, sexual assault. I will say, I, I, I will put this out there. Maybe it's spoiler. You do not, there, there is not assault depicted on screen. I think it's important to tell that to people. Like, you please do not feel like you need to go into this movie sitting on the edge of your seat wondering when, like, there's going to be a rape. Um, there is a sort of off-screen thing that happens, audio-based, but... I think I would like for people to know that in that way, like this movie will could trigger a lot for you in those kinds of topics, but that is not what you will be subjected to in this movie. And I just want that to be clear. There, there are some other horrifying things, but that's not what you will be subjected to in Promising Young Woman. So go in with that knowledge if that's a trigger point for you. Yeah, I see it is that kind of thing where you, like I always feel like my job as a film critic is to be, is just to go, oh, yeah, like, I kind of slightly want to put caution tape around it because I know that some people have been heavily affected by it. And it's hard because, like, you can't really tell a person, yes, this will, you know, yes, this will be extremely triggering. No, mm-hmm. this won't because as we kind of talked about before, it's very different for other for everybody, for every individual. Completely. So, yeah, I I would say, you know, just from me and my, my life, I... I was incredible like, i have just not stopped thinking about it honestly <laughs> no i haven't i haven't yeah it's over the year i'm not something about this it movie. was absolutely mm-hmm. devastating it was it was hard to watch even mm-hmm. as much as i enjoyed the pharmacy date scene you know it's it's a really you feel it in your stomach it's one of those movies 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but I feel I'm really glad that I watched it. I'm so so glad that I watched it, and it it helped me. I don't know. It helped me process a a lot of things, <laughs> things that maybe mm-hmm. were only also tangentially related to the movie. It's one of those films mm-hmm. that just one of those films that will may start you off on a, a path of of thought and self realization. And I think those are a real precious precious movies. Mm-hmm. I was I was actually like euphoric when I went out. I was like lightheaded. I I watched in the middle of the work day and was like, mm. I'm instead of gonna go back to work, I'm just gonna walk around this block for like an hour. So that was, and I was just, and I was so grateful for it. I was like, this is, and, and I didn't think like, wow, people are gonna fucking love this. I was like, this is gonna need some conversation, and I was mm. so grateful for that. So let's use this moment then to remind people. Again, if you are listening this up until this point, Promising Young Woman is out in the UK now on Sky Cinema. And from this point onward, consider this your spoiler warning. My assistant tells me that you're interested in resuming med school. I left under unusual circumstances. You remember the accusations made against Alexander Monroe? I don't. He took a girl back to his room. You know, we get accusations like this all the time. So it's a he said, she said situation. What would you have me do? Ruin a young man's life? (laughs) Was it reported? Yes. Do you know who she spoke to? You. Well, the doctor's here. It's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Really? Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? (laughs) We're in spoiler territory now. We had this conversation slightly before pressing record about what to consider the spoiler, the spoilerific moment of this film. And your answers were really interesting. And let's start with the one that that really threw me, actually, Clarice, which is the moment where the relationship between Cassie and Ryan breaks down. Mm hmm like um <laughs> listen <laughs> listen um i think that has a lot to do with like my own personal experience in dating history <laughs> anna you'll probably know about this that i you know i do i do my entire dating life has been me trying to find like the one cool guy the one guy who's gonna be like okay and just chill, chill dude <laughs> <laughs> sure and it's not gonna damage <laughs> damage my soul in any way he's just gonna be chill all the way and, and so i think i've pretty much been been dating variations of bo burnham my entire life <laughs> <laughs> um so i think that was very much the devastating part of it because I, I have experience of that that cycle of like building a guy up of like he's so perfect, he's so pure, like he would never hurt anybody. And then, mm-hmm. you know, something happens, you discover something about them, or they they act in a way that seems really out of character, and then you go, 
oh no, that's just that's just the way men are. <laughs> I yeah, think. Oh god, yeah. it turns out it's all of them. Like exactly. Yeah, it is very much that thing of 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 you know when of <laughs> when falling head over heels, you know, for a guy and thinking, oh no, maybe not all men. And then having the moment yeah. of going, ah, yes, all men. And so I think you that's know, <laughs> that's the real. That was the one of the big, big gut punches of this movie, is mm-hmm. is me sort of re-experiencing that emotional cycle <laughs> all over mm-hmm. again. Of um, with Bo Burnham, who is is just you know artistically a hero of mine. I. I used to do comedy and I really, really looked up to him and, and have always thought that he's an incredibly talented guy and seems really chill as well. So I, it was that sort of double punch of, oh, yeah. not only is it is it somebody that is very reminiscent to me of, of people in my own life, but also he's being played by somebody that I have just the utmost respect for and, and yeah. having that turn on its head just like I wanted to throw up I felt so bad which I know is it's that's not the obvious takeaway from this movie but you know that's the thing everyone has their own moments I think in this movie yeah well it's yeah I mean when he when it's when it's uh when it breaks that he was complicit in what had happened to Nina that he he didn't he didn't um sexually assault her but Mm. he was there and he laughed and he let it go he didn't do anything that would, as she's watching, as Cassie's watching that video um, that Alison Brie's character has brought her, that was a, <gasps> where you feel that in the theater. And and nobody, nobody saw it coming. But then, and then you're mad at yourself because you're like, why didn't I see it coming? I like, know. Because <laughs> then you're mad at yourself. You, you, tr- you trusted a man. The, I was it's so a mad disappointment. at myself. <laughs> Like, I was just like, you've been through this before. <laughs> they you seem know! like they're really great you got feminist allies. by the baby blues again. They read all the right <laughs> books. They read all the feminist books and then they still do something shitty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's an incredible, like, and the fact that, the fact that it is, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the worst thing that you're going to feel in this movie. Mm, when that yeah. It's like. Like when you have the hindsight knowledge that you're like that wasn't the worst I was gonna feel in this movie is is a real like Jesus Christ Emerald yeah. whoa <laughs> yeah that's kind of the beginning the beginning of mm, the the beginning of it's just gonna get it's just gonna I'm gonna feel worse from this point onwards <laughs> <laughs> yep but it's it's that first stab of disappointment and I think the thing that feels so hurtful about it. Is that not just that you don't expect it from him, mm-hmm. is that there is, when he, you know, was revealed to have been complicit to also have known all of this and known all who Cassie time. was all this time and perhaps not even like considered it, not mm-hmm. considered that this was a, a thing that he probably should talk to the woman that he's fallen in love with and who's mm-hmm. fallen in love with him. That might be a, a like a little, maybe not pillow talk, but should be a conversation at some right, point. Right, yeah. Especially um, since they've already had like a reckoning moment where like yeah. she essentially kind of like what he sees as betrayed him when he sees her out on the town trying to like, you mm. know, trap another man. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I, I, I've been super patient. I don't mind that. Like, you want to take it slow. This, that, the other. And he, you know, he's like, you're, a, you know, he very like self-effacingly charming. You're, you're a fucking asshole. And then they get back together. 
And she goes through the, I promise you it will never happen again. I'm sorry. And she does the accountability moment with him. Mm. And he never gives that back to her. But it's the fact that she- Never gives it back. She thought she had found an ally. As in someone who would give her that validation that Mm -hmm. she so desperately needs. Mm Mm-hmm. And isn't necessarily articulating even to herself. And then the disappointment. The disappointment knowing that he had this all along mm-hmm. and just never told her. Probably never even thought of telling her. No, because never it didn't even ma- thought Because to it didn't her. matter. And it's the fact that it does not matter enough to merit yeah. a conversation or a confession. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I think that's the, the gut punch of like, yeah. oh, it just does not matter to you. It is the organizing principle of her entire life, and it is barely a footnote in his story. Well, he doesn't, he, I, I feel like he doesn't even, he doesn't remember it. He just forgot about mm-hmm. it. And, and yeah. like, that's the even oh. more cruel thing about it. He just, yeah, because he he seems to be very shocked by the video of like, oh, you just, you just forgot, you forgot you were there. Because it just didn't even, at the time, it just didn't register. It was a short term Yeah, when he's actively, when he's actively watching, he's like, I don't want to see that. His initial, his initial response is not one of recognition. Mm. It's why are you showing me something so terrible? Even though the people in the video are very clearly people in his life that he knows someone whose wedding he's about to go to. Mm. And he's still like, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to watch that. It's not like, oh my God, it's the tape. He doesn't even have that until, wait, wait, and she forces him to keep looking, and then he knows. But the idea of it being the tape doesn't first Mm. enter his consciousness until he is forced to continue engaging with it. Yeah, because it, it, and I think Alison Brie's character, sorry, I've forgotten her character name, I just keep calling her Alison Brie. Madison? Um, (laughs) Madison, Madison, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because of course she's a Madison. Yeah, Madison, Allison. (laughs) (laughs) But she, yeah, she also has, when she first gives her hands over the tape, she has also kind of the same reaction to it of of she Mm -hmm. completely forgot about, even though this was a tape that was sent to people and they all watched it and she said Mm -hmm. they all laughed about it. And through this entire time, like, it it was such a, a small and insignificant event to these people that... They simply do not remember it. It's not even that they've been trying to hide it. They just Mm -hmm. didn't. There's nothing. Well, and I think that goes so hand in hand with the, like you talked about the Molly Shannon and and Mm -hmm. um, Nina's mom and Cassie on the porch conversation and the way that Cassie really exists to be a vessel of Nina. It just, it really, Mm -hmm. and the way that people have forgotten about this, the way that people don't really remember her name, except for the people whose lives were changed. Like Alfred Molina, he remembers Nina. Like, oh, that was it was her, wasn't it? And mm. because he's living his life in like emotional ruination, the fact of that if she doesn't do this, if she if if Cassie doesn't live this reg this particular life's this particular life, this routine of sort of revenge in her own way, who will remember her? If I don't, who will? Like she has the she has the photos all around her frame, um, you know, in her room on her vanity, and she says, Good night, Nina, and then turns on her light. Like, so much of her is devoted to keeping this person alive and it becomes at the expense of of her being alive herself. But then you just see played out around her constantly this passive affirmation of her choices in a way because it's like, well, nobody else will, so I have to. So the responsibility Mm -hmm. is mine and 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 very much to her, like, the fault is mine. And so that, I think it helps imbue her with that responsibility. And just to have Ryan not think about it and to have Madison have to suffer a kind of 
odd surrogate assault experience um, before she even considered that this tape existed. And to have her mom being like, you know, her mom trying to deal with this healthily and being like, you can't keep bringing these kinds of memories back here. Like, you need to move on, Cassie, for everybody. Like, everybody's telling her to get past it. And and I'm sure what she's hearing is everybody's telling her to forget. And everybody's telling her to forget Nina. And which is, you know, why her ultimate goal when faced with Al is to carve her name into his body so he can't forget. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, it, fe- it feels almost really hard remembering it now, but I think this is a moment where Cassie really loses the little control that she had over her yeah. emotions. It's a devastation of everybody, including Nina's mother, telling her to forget. Mm-hmm. Well, as you mentioned, Jordan, I think it's it's better expressed that telling her to get over it, to let yeah. go. And what yeah. she's hearing is to forget Nina, <clears throat> to forget what happened. Yeah, I think that's how she internalizes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you in the, in that reading. And I was wondering what you guys make then of the, um, I guess, the, the third act of the film, the final kind of act of vengeance, especially directed towards Nina's actual rapist, Al Monroe, in this film, mm-hmm. because that feels like a very contained section of the film where we've we've seen her process we've seen her attempt to let go attempt to move on attempt to fall in love and and learn to trust another person and kind of become have a life be cassie as opposed to a vessel for nina's memory Mm. so what happens once the tape is revealed once ryan's deception is revealed and she decides to go after Al Monroe and, and have that final act of vengeance against the actual rapist. Not all men, not pa- not the patriarchy, not everyone, but that specific dude. What do you guys make about her, her mission against Al? I think what really struck me about that final third is the second she sees the video, you see her emotional reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And she turns up and then she's in full, I would say, like Avenger, Avenging Angel mode. Everything yeah. she's... Uniform. Yeah. And even when she's yeah. talking to Ryan in, in his office, there's something very insincere about the way that she's uh, Carrie's delivering her lines because she's playing the part now. You know, she's, she's a predator. She's fully a predator. Yeah. Like the, the humanity is gone, completely gone. Mm-hmm. And she's just in the performance of I am going to get vengeance now. And and I feel like, yeah, from that point on, even, and it's interesting, even when she's talking about Nina, even though the words that she are say, she's saying are really sincere and beautiful and talking about this, but, you know, talking about the relationship, I feel like the way that she delivers them is almost not sincere. Like she's practiced this in front of the mirror a hundred times. That's to entirely the point possible. Yeah. That it's like it's lost the meaning. So the actual words, they're important, but the way she's saying them, it's just like, here's my monologue that I've been practicing for my entire life, and I'm delivering it to you now because now's the moment and and I've rehearsed this and I'm ready. That's the feeling that I got from that the like final third. I, what I, I mean, Carrie in a nurse outfit, check, great, 100, 100%, <laughs> it's tense, and um, just, you know, watching, watching Schmidt <laughs> from New Girl Be Just a Fucking Douche is, you know, well done. Oh, make, it is the darkest pi- timeline. 
<laughs> the darkest timeline. The slow motion pouring of the booze into the mouth. The the Carrie gum smacking. Like we are at maximum like like Cassie oral fixation at this point in the movie. The way she pulls the glove off of her hand with her teeth. The way she's smacking at the gum. And the way she, you know, when she finally gets Al up to the room, the way she puts on the voice. And oh, she's, voice. you know, oh, the voice. <laughs> oh, that that come hither voice. And the way he's like, you know, oh, no, what's your real name? Nina. And the way the words just like drip off of her like acid and they it's hit acid. And she has him, you know, restrained. <clears throat> and to me, like, I mean, the, the break my heart moment of this scene is when she's talking about Cassie. But one of my, again, a perfect line delivery in this movie, because like getting into the, the Carrie Mulligan of it, too. She's, again, so measured and such like restrained performance, minimalism. When she's taught, she's trying, she's just trying to get Al to take accountability. She's just trying to get Al to admit who he is and what he did. And he just fucking won't. You know, we were kids. You know, if I hear that one more time, but that, that moment where he says something and she just snaps back at him and just goes wrong. And she yells at him. It's the only time she yells in the entire movie for how angry and simmering she is the entire time it's the only moment when her voice like breaks into a new register and she just yells wrong and puts him in his place and then you watch how you know i've i've seen certain like people who don't like the ending express that like that like oh she just went there to kill herself like i thought this was a story of um, empowerment this that the other no no and and emerald has talked about this too but even like my intuitive sense of what this was she knew how it could go she was a person who wasn't necessarily attached to being alive which is evidenced throughout mm. her entire behavior throughout the movie but she knew if al was who she thought he was she knew how it could end she was aware of the consequence and she had a contingency in place with the lawyer in the evidence cassie did not go there to die Cassie did not go there to die, but she go. She went there knowing what her routine is and how she was going to play it, but being very aware that this person has been living a life unscrutinized in all these seven years since he raped my best friend and she, you know, we are heavily led to believe, it's not explicitly said, killed herself as a result of it. I am going to finally exact my revenge by, again, carving his name, her name into his body and having him have to remember her forever the way that I have to remember her forever so somebody else can carry her forward. She knew that if he was who she thought he was, that there was a possibility she wasn't making it out. And in the end, all of these men, as, as my friend Sam Weinman said to me, which I thought was very appropriate, of course Ryan dropped the ball. Of course Al kills her. Because in the end, all these men are exactly who she knew they were the entire time. And she had suspended that she had suspended that awareness and long enough for with Ryan to have a relationship with him and have an amazing little rom-com confined in the walls of this like exploding revenge movie. But in the end, Al's exactly who she thinks he was. And the fact that through to the very last, to the very last, he why are you making me do this to you? Stop moving. Stop moving. Her death is her own fault. In Al's eyes, certainly. And in the eyes of Schmidt and everybody else at the bachelor party who would, you know, they don't find out, but Schmidt's got this covered. But like the fact that to the very end, he is not responsible for what he's done because it was an accident. It was the heat of the moment. And what we get, like, I think this, you know, somebody told me the movie doesn't have teeth. And I really 
didn't take a shine to that because of all because of her letting the men off like her letting like the adam brody and the christopher mince plus like she's she's letting all these guys off like the movie the movie held back no the movie lulls you into thinking that life and death is not a consequence in this movie so when you reach the ultimate moment of betrayal you had taken it out of your mind entirely if that was probably an option like oh we're not dealing with death in this this is a different kind of story so when she is suffocated to death in what i presume is a basically real time it play is. out of that scenario like this it's is two what and it a would half be. minutes yeah this is what it would be to snuff the life out of a person suffocating them to death in a basically just camera sitting and watching it happen and you have every it gives you so many opportunities to think it's not it won't it can't it doesn't it won't it can't because it couldn't she's gonna do something someone's gonna come in be like mm-hmm. al what are you doing and no it gives you two and a half minutes to be sure it's not gonna happen and then even when she's dead and even when it goes from nighttime to daylight you're like she's gonna get up she's mm-hmm. gonna get up because there's not another way and the fact that the movie has done such a good job of convincing you that the terms and conditions you've signed on for would prevent what you just saw from happening is an incredible fucking trick that is an incredible fucking feat of of direction and i was i was so angry i was so hateful and i was so mad but i like the ending <laughs> i like the ending i like the ultimate ending. yeah no i agree and and what you said about the trick it's it is like it it really captures well emotionally the the randomness of violence you know yeah. in film in film we're so used to it having a structure it has like a prelude and then it happens and it has an aftermath yeah here right. as you said you you get so convinced that this isn't gonna happen and then it's like an explosion like bang and and i i remember being absolutely shell-shocked by it because I, I could believe that it could happen. Because I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. it could happen. But I, yeah, I had been in so put in the place of, oh, this movie won't do this. This movie's not going to do no. it. It's doing it. It's doing it. It can't do that. Yeah. Mm-mm. It can't and do that. And that's so powerful. Because she didn't get to do it to anybody else, especially. She didn't do this to anybody else. So it can't happen to her. Well, I think this is the negotiation of threat. That Mm -hmm. is a very, um, it's not uniquely female, but it's definitely distinctly female as Mm -hmm. an experience of, and and I actually really get where a lot of the criticism of the film is coming from. I, this is one of the things that I love about this film is that I can, I can see it. I can love it. I can feel it in my bones. And Mm -hmm. yet I can also appreciate where the criticism and the critiques are coming from. Yeah, of course. But the more I think about it and kind of listening to you, to you speak about it and, and listening to a lot of other people and reading a lot more think pieces and essays and reviews about it. There is something about, I'm not still convinced in my bones. I still don't know whether that was a suicide mission or not for Cassie. I genuinely have not decided yet for myself because I can see it from both angles. I think there is a constant negotiation of threat, like you were describing, Jordan, of her knowing the a potential outcome and putting things in place for that. And obviously her end goal throughout the whole film and this is the big kind of misdirection and the playfulness of the genre as well is that her goal is so simple she just wants someone to fucking say Mm -hmm. what happened and who did it it's accountability Mm -hmm. and that's the most difficult thing because that's reputational 
because Nina because Nina has disappeared and Al hasn't and has Al is such a nice guy and he's got such a great career and he's come and given a talk at the university and all yeah. that jazz and it's all fun and we'll get into that then in uh, the third episode of this mini podcast but my thing about that ending is that we have seen a lot of candy colored brutality we have mm-hmm. seen brutal language which is language that we hear every day so it yeah. no longer seems brutal mm-hmm. we you, you you will hear it for mm-hmm. what it really means if you're used to decoding it on a daily mm-hmm. basis you see the the inherent threat of her just being in certain places mm-hmm. as a woman as a woman who like presents herself in a certain way to the world and what people think of her in this situation in this ending the reason it kind of really I felt like really stabbed by it, like physically stabbed mm-hmm. by it because I was not expecting it. And of course, it's a great. Oh, yeah. I was ready to write of- off the entire movie. I was ready to mm. write it off. What I think really struck me is not just the the actual murder, which is so. It's so it's such a passionate and a passionless murder at the same yeah. time mm-hmm. because it is entirely based around Al's self-preservation. Yeah. Because he cannot allow this girl to talk. He cannot allow Nina's memory to exist because it incriminates him. Yeah. And it's worth murdering. But also, he doesn't, at no point does he consider this a murder. Or does Schmidt, when he comes in, the talk yeah. that he gives Al is exactly the talk that you would give a friend of yours who's just been assaulted. It's yeah. literally word for word. Yeah. The language. Yeah. It's it's not your fault. We're going to fix it. We're going to take care of this. You haven't done anything wrong. We will take care of it. Mm-hmm. But because but when there's literal a literal fucking dead body right next to him. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that hurt the most and I think is such a massive flex of the film and so bold in its ugliness is the fact that they burn Cassie's body. It's mm-hmm. the literal erase, like completely disintegrate her. She doesn't even get a funeral. She doesn't mm-hmm. get a tombstone. She doesn't get anything. Nope. And it and the and and you know and again for me and my priorities in this movie and all that all that remains in the pile at the end of ashes, the only discernible thing that like we're allowed to make out is a is a half a heart necklace that says Nina. The only thing that remains is this representation of Nina, which had metaphorically been true before and now was literally true. And that was where it got me. That was where it got me back. Where, like, you know, that, the, you know, they we're at the wedding. We're, I, I love the, the very millennial wedding. It <laughs> looks like cottagecore fucking outdoors. Really There's like does. a weird drum circle thing. <laughs> and it's like, oh, God, this is. And like you're dealing with this as like, like you're given this like sight gags after you see Ryan completely abdicate any, any responsibility he would have had as a human being and as as a as a person who allegedly loved her you see her parents be devastated you see them being oh my god clancy brown jennifer coolidge in this movie are so heartbreaking and devastated but not surprised which is the thing that yeah. makes me feel like there isn't like you you mentioned before that she's not necessarily suicidal mm-hmm. but she's not attached to the idea of living mm-hmm. and i think her they're devastated but they're not surprised 
Yeah, when she, you know, well, it was it was she, a waiting does game. she leave? And mom's like, well, you know, she she and, and dad's like, well, she has left before. And it's like, hey, like, don't like, don't say that. Don't make this sound like it is what they're saying it is. And they're like, we thought and then it's we thought she was getting better. We thought things were improving. She hadn't done that in a long time. And the way that it immediately goes to like that, you know, well, was she unwell? Like asking Ryan, like, do you think she would have hurt herself? Like, is this because she's defective or broken that we're looking into this right now? And it's just so, it's what you hear from any friend or if you've experienced it yourself, going, trying to go through channels of, you know, legal retribution legal vindication for being on the other end of, of a violent crime as a woman or a sexual assault crime and all of those questions to interrogate your in your integrity in the moment as opposed to seemingly being primarily concerned with the crime and the violation itself and to watch that happen through her parents to watch that happen through fucking ryan as you just know that like her body is smoldering in a field is so brutally representative metaphorically of like a literal reality. And so when it, and and a point I do, I I just so deeply cannot, I I just cannot see the critique of this film as being pro-police. I just can't. I know that is something that comes up for people. And I, I absolutely want to interrogate the role of police state and heroism. I want to do that. I want to do it with cop procedurals. I want to do them revenge. I want to do that in, in, yes, that is something we should be doing. But I just don't think that this holds up to that kind of like indictment. Because I'm sorry, the police showing up years too late and with two dead women behind them. That's not law enforcement fucking white knighting. Like having oh, having a having a dead woman do all your work for you, and then a man bringing that evidence to you until we to where you'll finally believe it and and follow up on it. That is not a testament to the heroism or the necessity of the police state. There's nothing about like there's even that moment where Al gets marched off in irons, and then there's this moment where they just holds a bit as a wide shot on the wedding scene, and like there's just a kind of couple police facing toward the camera, and they're just standing there, and everybody looks. Kind kind of dumbfounded even the police and it's like yeah you have a bunch of fucking flatfoots right here who came so late to the party that there's a body burning and there's a dead woman as a result of like spiraling into a suicidal depression in the wake of a sexual assault and now they've shown up there's nothing endorsing law enforcement about this just nothing i think there's a great conversation to be had about the role of whiteness and white femininity and their privileged position in in how they are treated by the state and by law enforcement compared to black women, compared to trans folks. Like, that is a conversation I want to have. But the idea to flippantly, what I think is flippantly say, that this movie is pro-law enforcement in the way that makes them look like complete fucking assholes by the time they show up late to the party, I, 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 I can't abide that. I think my take on it was, you know, you said about white femininity. It's just a true fact that the only thing the police give a shit about is if a very pretty young white lady gets murdered in a dramatic way. That yeah. to me is just, it's reality. That's the time when the police yes. all come around and they go and they, and pretend to be the heroes. That's the you sick know. fucking truth. And I think, yeah, I think there's something clever about that ending that. You know, I look, I don't know if it's intentional, but to me it's reading, oh, look, Cassie knows that she has a certain amount of privilege as this this pretty young white lady. 
if she dies. She has expressed her awareness of that privilege and being able to ascend through the ranks of society at will if she exactly. chooses to. So I have to believe she knows that. Yeah, and and she knows that they're going to do something because this is like the repeating pattern of when one of these murders happen. It it, it becomes, you know, giant publicity. And, and I think her end goal for me is that mm. it's not even about the conviction. She knows that during yeah. that court case, they will play the video. They have it oh now. Oh my god, Clarice. That's what it is to me. She doesn't she doesn't mm. even the conviction doesn't matter because sure they might not be convicted, but at some point they are gonna show that video and everyone's gonna know. Well, that's why I don't, and that's why I, that's why I, 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 I deeply don't think that this, that this was like, you know, essentially a suicide mission. Cause I, I don't think it's a suicide mission any more than like John Wick being like, I don't care about my life more than I care about revenge right now. Mm. So I'm going to go face down an entire criminal organization, which I more than likely will be killed in the process of, but I have a franchise to carry. So I won't be like, it's no more <laughs> a suicide mission than Charles Bronson. It's no more a suicide mission than the movie Peppermint. Like in the way that all of those, like those people fight to survive through their circumstances, but you don't buy into that circumstance circumstance unless you're like the price for this could be my life but the outcome is potentially worth it because i don't have a lot of things that are worth it right now because the outcome of like that video being played in court and the outcome of nina's name being carved literally into al's body are the same Hmm. that video being played publicly that video being made evidence in a in in a you know a public trial that being effectively having her name carved all over him for the rest of his life Mm -hmm. and i think that's the thing she knows it because if if, yeah. Even if she just released the video, they weren't going to do anything about it, right? There was never going to be no. a trial if she just brought no. the video to the police. If she tried to put it on the internet, no one would have cared. They will care if it's shown as part of a murder trial, you know. And I mm. think, and that's yeah, that's why I also really disagree with the pro police stance because I it's very much about Cassie knowing that fact and and knowing this sort of (laughs) this weird fucking system of the police Mm -hmm. and what they care about and what they prioritize she knows that that's the only way that she can ultimately have this vengeance that she is fixated on i mean i i sort of stand in the kind of in the the middle of both Mm. of you i see very valid points in the in the argument i don't think it's necessarily actively pro-police and in that kind of potentially very uh, american way right right we have we have a relationship with that (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna kind of sit here in my weird in between international don't really belong to any countries anna you're a citizen of the world you are a global citizen (laughs) that's what your passport is global citizen passport that's that's my global privilege to be like i'm not very committed to any particular country or system so i'm gonna comment on all of them from an, an emotional distance yeah so i can i can totally see it but i think one thing that's kind of very clear and very stark listening to the both of you is that Cassie is whether and I I genuinely cannot decide for myself which is why I'm reading so much and talking so much and thinking so much about this film I cannot decide whether she's knowingly weaponizing her white femininity sure or whether that is our reading into it Mm -hmm. because I think there is an element of knowingness because of that that one scene but I also think that she's incredibly hindered by her own trauma and her own grief so I don't know how much she actually can do the thing that her pretty white skinny girl privileges allow her to do like Mm -hmm. she could 
but can she really? And the same, mm-hmm. and the reason why I say this is that scene with Bo Burnham when she could have gone up, she could have had that, you know, let's see what happens vibe. She yeah. can't, and it makes her so fucking angry. And I think revenge is systemic for her. It's not mm. it's not systemic, it's systemized. So she has a to-do list. It's organized. She has a mission. She rarely loses control. She only loses control with that one moment when she yeah. yells at Al. Mm. And this kind of... I, I still think there's an element of a suicide mission to it, in at least in the acceptance that there is a really strong possibility that she might not come out of it alive. Sure. But sure, sure. also accepting fully that it is worth it. And this is why I, my my mind was completely blown when you mentioned it, Clarice. It will be worth it if the tape gets played and mm-hmm. it gets put on a record, on a record somewhere that mm-hmm. Nina's name, through her death, yeah, becomes vindicated and becomes yeah. an Al's name is like he will mm-hmm. be held accountable because of that. If the cost of it is Cassie's life, then so be it. I find that acceptance of it to be there is an element of of suicide to it to yeah. me to my mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. yeah but i also completely see how this is entirely up for debate and the police coming in at the very last minute is a massive rug pull of the film personally i was absolutely not expecting it mm-hmm. because the 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 automatic default is like well they got away with it it's mm-hmm. hella fucking depressing it's yeah, really, yeah it's making me really angry yeah <laughs> it wasn't until it wasn't until the text the very the, the very last text that i was like and it's my favorite movie of the year. Like, I went from, like, throw it, toots, throw it in the fucking fire to, like, oh, it's the best movie of the year from, like, her death until that final, like, XO Cassie Nina. Like, that that was the, it took me all that time. <laughs> was in a real purgatory between those two moments. But you know what? I still don't trust that they don't get away with it. Oh, no. And I think that, and I, I think there's an, and not that, and I think this is like a, a, a read into a read into a read. So I'm not like wedded to this as canon, but I think it is interesting to like have the thing that is raining down upon Al at the very, as, as Schmidt runs away, have the thing <laughs> that is raining down upon Al in that moment is to him the most tangible form of um, justice that exists in his mind. Like the police protect people like him. The police mm-hmm. don't hurt people like him. Again, I don't think this is canon or anything like that, but I think it is interesting to consider the aspect of like, he is the ultimate example of what these boys in blue are meant to protect and preserve. And for them to show up in the middle of his wedding and haul him off is probably the most foreign concept he could have ever conceived of in his, in his entire life. Oh, it's the humiliation be- for me. Oh, yeah. And he that he would be put in the back of a police car. Like, he's for sure called the police on, like, Black people existing. Like, Al has definitely been like, there's a loud party next door. Like, he's definitely been that guy. So, like, the idea that these two serve and protect apparatus is coming down on him, I think is absolutely anathema to everything he ever considered a possibility in his life, which is just, like, a consideration, I think, is just kind of, like, a fun little picture. I think also what's really interesting to me is that when she's killed, she's in the guise of a sex worker, right? Yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a really big part. That's part of her twist and her plan is that they they obviously thought they were going to get away with it because, oh, she's just a sex worker. You know, that's the police don't give a shit about that. They're just going to brush over it. And for her to be like... And Schmidt says, he goes, Al, you killed the fucking stripper? Exactly. 
And it what extremely nineties movie Schmidt way, and that really scared me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, he's just he's just on all all new girl cylinders. Yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, that was that's a really big part of the ending for me as well. Is that's why they thought they could get away with it, and she goes, "Surprise! I'm actually a middle class <laughs> lady with these." Nice Surprise! Hair, My like... ghost is an affluent suburban yeah. white woman. <laughs> I. I I don't know. I feel like there's too many elements to it for me to not feel like this is all an intentional part of the plan and the structure and the ending. Mm-hmm. It's it's well, too I think, smart. I think, <laughs> I and I think too. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like this fucking galaxy brain script. I don't even think it has to be that. Like I don't have to. I don't have to project this incredible amount of untouchable genius onto this this filmmaking team. It's just, this is all so internalized from Mm. our lives. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't have, she doesn't have to sit there and have, like, a fucking Carrie, Emerald doesn't have to have a Carrie Matheson yarn chart to write a story like this. Like, this isn't, you know, seven, 18-dimensional chess coming at you. Like, no, when you've internalized all these details and all these lessons and all these stories your whole life, living while female and being surrounded by women growing up, this is just the shit that, like, the fact that she condensed it down into this, like, sleek framework is deeply impressive. But it's just like, yeah, she just made it true. Like, she just took a bunch of true stories and made a very, like, fabulous version of them. Like, and that's the, that's why it's a horror movie. Because it is such an incredibly, it's a fun, upsetting, stylish pretty succinct distillation of so many of these thoughts that we have hours long conversations about in our lives for years at a time in our lives that like we try and make sense of this whole fucking maelstrom and the fact that it so expeditiously delivers all these kinds of conversation points in a really sensible and like fun and entertaining form while also being devastating that is goddamn confident directorial effort i say i mean wow wow so Guys, is there, before we wrap up, is there anything that you really wanted to to talk about, Promising Young Woman, that we, in, in this first, in this first episode, I have to hold myself like... back. I have to say absolutely no, Jordan, there is not, because there are more episodes, so I am not even letting myself start. But this is this is the most contained I've ever seen you. But is for there- you, Anna. It's for you. <laughs> but also, I feel like I can't top that. So I also do not want to contribute anymore because that was a perfect like send off. I that was beautiful. Yeah, like, <laughs> send us off into promising young podcast and yeah. so many more threads that we I'm need so to glad explore. We're doing this. <laughs> but is there anything that you wanted to mention that perhaps we haven't covered? in this first of a four-part section of this film that you want to that you want to end on i won't end on anything but i will say and like maybe this is a sign-off thing but like i this is it's funny to cite my own twitter feed but i do have and i retweet it periodically if you're looking for writing to engage with about this movie i will repost it i'm jor crew on twitter and um i've tried to collect as as like thorough of a thread as i can of women and like gender queer folks writing about promising young women like just whatever takes I agree with takes I don't it's irrelevant mm-hmm. to me like there's just so much to say about this movie so I will continue to keep boosting that it's been a while since I have so I'll do it again so if you find me on Twitter and like you know search Jor Crew Promising Young Woman Twitter I will link it in the show notes 
Yeah. And again, it's positions I agree with. It's positions I don't. It's really scathing reviews. It's screaming praise. I want there to be as well-rounded a conversation of this movie as there possibly can be, because that is the true just enduring gift of something like this, is if you're willing to engage with it, how much you can take from it and how many more conversations it can springboard off into. So that's my only thing. Almost like it could springboard a podcast series. (laughs) <laughs> i wonder if someone has thought of that i wonder clarice any any final thoughts on on the film i mean i i could talk about it all day so. and we will so but so i'll just that's yeah i'll zip it as well because <laughs> i think yeah jordan you're right it's it's it is a it is a gift like the conversations that this has started have been really important the positive and the negative ones and and it's it's got people talking about things that you know are directly linked to the film things that sort of aren't directly linked to the film it's spinning off into like multiple directions and like that's all great so there will be three more episodes of promising young podcasts we will be chatting more about the 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 patriarchy rape culture <laughs> assault the language of rape culture is something that i definitely really really want to dig into in the next episode and this will i will link to jordan's twitter thread and the show notes and to a couple of other really interesting takes on promising young women all will be in the show notes but before we sign off where can people find more of your work online I was just going to say, I already did this. I said the Twitter feed and I shouted out the podcast at the start. So find me out there, folks. Yeah, I just just go find me on Twitter. I'm at Clarice Lou and I I post everything on there because you got to do that in this day and age. Do it. <laughs> I keep forgetting to do that. But don't, don't do yourself a disservice. You review for The Independent. You've got four podcasts. I tweet everything out because like you gotta do that in this day and age. So I'm all it's all at Clarice Lou. But the, the podcast that I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing the screen test with which is a prime video thing where we argue about movies, hosted by Jack Howard. Um I do the next Supremes with you, Anna <laughs> where we talk what about a title. we talk about American horror story and we yeah, we just it's a disaster zone, but a beautiful one, I would say. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a Ryan you. Murphy. That's a Ryan Murphy production, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's I feel like very we deliberate. Imbue yeah. the spirit of a Ryan Murphy production through our podcast. Completely, it's earnest and chaotic and eloquent. <laughs> uh, I've got my my weekly film review podcast that I do with two friends called Fade to Black, um, and we will be covering Promising Young Woman, so tune into that. And also, I, I've started a book club with my friend Joe and and we're reading Little Women at the moment so it's the big screen book club I'm both reading the book very slowly I'm getting there and we're gonna also talk about the Greta Gerwig movie because it's cute I really like that movie guys thank you so much for all of your time and sharing your thoughts and and feelings about Promising Young Women and there will be more there will be at least I can't commit to a number of hours because it's unpredictable, but there will definitely be <laughs> some more in-depth discussion in the section of this film because it deserves it. It does. And we've got the time and the energy and the passion <laughs> and the recording equipment. 
<laughs> there you go. There's the podcasting economy right there. 